This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, there are two Japanese fairy tales. You'll see that when it comes to students partying and not studying, Buddhist monks are apparently no exception. And we'll see perhaps the least epic battle so far in the podcast between a man and a polite yet insistent butterfly. The creature this time is a mean cow who just wants to laugh at your misfortune unless you're eating soup. In that case, run for your life. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, episode 57, Faithful. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This week's episode is brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts. You can upgrade your day with Dunkin' Donuts perks. Dunkin' Donuts perks offers on-the-go ordering, so you can order ahead of time from your phone and speed past that line in the store. And with the Dunkin' app, you can even choose to pay from your phone. Plus, you can enjoy exclusive special offers like free beverages when you enroll and on your birthday. You can give yourself an upgrade today by downloading the Dunkin' app and enrolling in DD Perks. Enter code PODCAST and enjoy a free Dunkin' beverage. Speeding past the line may not be possible in all locations. Visit ddperks.com for terms and conditions. We're just going to dive right in this week. These stories are fairy tales, so historical period doesn't really matter. The second one deals with Buddhism a bit, but we'll talk about that as we go. The first story is about a dying man and his annoyed yet dutiful extended family. The young man and his mother got the message. They needed to come quickly. The young man's uncle, Takahama, was dying. It was surprising, as that message would be for anyone, but they barely knew Takahama. He lived alone behind the cemetery, and though he was polite, he was perpetually short-tempered, and he never seemed to pay attention when you talked. It was as if his mind was somewhere else. The young man would go with his father, Takahama's younger brother, until his father died. And after that, he and his mother hardly went at all. Even though Takahama had stopped working years ago, he never seemed to have time for them, so they just stopped going. Now, he was dying. They were his only surviving relatives, so they dropped everything and went to Takahama's tiny house behind the cemetery. Even though it was a cool spring day, the shack was stifling. The doctor greeted them and said he didn't know who else to call. Takahama had collapsed while leaving on a walk. His heart was failing him in his advanced age, and it looked as if he only had hours to live. The most they could do now was make him comfortable and be with him so that he wasn't alone in his final hours. The mother and son agreed. It was the least they could do. A few hours passed, and they watched his pained, labored breathing. The mother held his hand, and the son looked around. The house was spartan in its simplicity. The clothes were plain, the food only what he needed for sustenance, and what few possessions he had were covered in varying degrees of dust. Then, the young man's mother tapped him on the arm and pointed with urgency to Takahama's head. The young man looked at his uncle and saw a large white butterfly resting on the man's forehead. The mother mouthed the words, get it off him, and the son stood and brushed the butterfly away. He sat down and saw that the butterfly had landed back on Takahama's forehead. The young man sighed and stood and again swatted the butterfly away, and again it returned immediately to Takahama's forehead. The young man grabbed a dusty fan from the shelf, opened it, and swatted at the butterfly a third time. But again, the butterfly landed on Takahama's head. 
the young man was starting to get angry. He wordlessly opened the back door of the house and got his fan ready. As far as epic battles on this podcast go, an average too large-ish sized butterfly versus a guy with a fan ranks probably somewhere towards the bottom, but it didn't mean the nephew was any less persistent. He fanned and swatted the butterfly out of the house, out past the magnificent garden his uncle kept, and into the cemetery. If the butterfly wanted to try to land on his uncle's head again, then the nephew would gently escort the butterfly outside without touching it. Yeah, he was not messing around. But the butterfly did not come back. It flew out to the cemetery. The young man folded his fan and turned back to his uncle's house. But remember that stifling heat and the pervasive feeling of dread inside. He decided he would take a quick walk through the cemetery, then rejoin his mother. The afternoon was cool, and the cherry trees were in bloom, and he enjoyed it so much that he walked much farther than he had intended. When he remembered his mother, he looked up and noticed that he was in an older part of the cemetery. The graves here were not as well maintained. Some even had moss growing on them, and the paths didn't seem as well-traveled, except for one. Despite the date of death being nearly 60 years ago, it looked as nice as some of the new headstones that he had seen near the front. Not only that, but it was surrounded by flowers. On the grave was written the name Akiko, with the description that she had died young, when she was just 18. But that wasn't what stood out to the young man. He looked up, and he saw the large white butterfly dancing in the air above the grave. The young man thought that it couldn't be the same white butterfly, and approached the grave. He nearly tripped on one of the many flowers arranged around her grave, and when he looked up, the butterfly was gone. The young man thought that was peculiar, but looked to the sky. It was getting late. He should get back to relieve his mother. He took one last look at the grave that gave him such a strange feeling, and walked back to his uncle's tiny house on the edge of the cemetery. Takahama was gone. The nephew consoled his mother, who had been with Takahama in his final moments. They were peaceful. He simply smiled and then stopped breathing. They made all the arrangements and had Takahama cremated. Sometime later in the week, the young man, who for some reason couldn't stop thinking about the white butterfly, asked his mother if the name Akiko meant anything. And the mother just shrugged. No, didn't ring any bells. Then, a few days later, the mother called the young man to the main room of the house and asked, where did you hear the name Akiko? In the week since Takahama's death, the mother was tasked with going through Takahama's things and settling his meager estate. It wasn't a hard job, but she finally got to his journals. They were simple, and every entry was like a letter to someone named Akiko. The journals dated back almost 60 years. The mother and son went back to the first page of the first journal, and that's when they learned the whole story. Takahama, as a young man of only 19, had been in love and engaged to a young woman named Akiko. They were going to get married, and from his writings, he was incredibly happy. Then, mere days before the wedding, she became ill. She never recovered. Takahama was inconsolable. That's when he began writing to her, telling her of the life they would have had together, all the things they would have done. He sold his meager possessions, and he bought a small house on the edge of the cemetery. He knew he would never love again. He loved Akiko, and that was enough. Every day, he went to her grave with the flowers he grew in a small garden. He would clean her grave, lay the flowers, and sit and talk with his love. He went every day, whether it was snowing, storming, or sweltering. 
It didn't matter. Then, the young man gasped. The white butterfly. It wasn't just some butterfly. It was a Kiko. On the day that Takahama couldn't come to her grave, on the last day of his life, she had come to him. The mother and son read through Takahama's journals, through he and Akiko's tragic and beautiful love story. When they came to the end, they knew that there was only one thing to do. They took Takahama's ashes and laid them to rest at the grave where he had spent so much time. Finally, in death, he was with Akiko. The young man put his arm around his mother as they left the cemetery. If they would have looked back, they would have seen two white butterflies fluttering happily in the air above the grave. The next story today is about a young student who really does not want to study at all. And that will be right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. If you love books but never have the time to read them, Audible has the perfect solution. You can just listen to all the books you've been meaning to read. Anywhere. Okay, so I thought of a really good book for listeners of the show. It's a book that you've probably heard of if you have any background in mythology. It's called Mythology by Edith Hamilton. In my opinion, it is the best, most readable introduction to Greek mythology. It covers a little Norse, too. If you like this podcast and are one of many many people who have wanted more Greek myths, check this out. The audiobook is really well narrated, and she even gets the pronunciations correct. Really give it a listen. And you can give it a listen, basically anywhere. Their app is free, and on iPhones, iPad, Android, and Windows Phone. You can also download and listen on your Kindle Fire and over 500 MP3 players. And with Audible, you own your books. And if you decide you don't like the book you chose, you can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another book, anytime, no questions asked. And just for listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership. You can go to audible.com slash myths. That's audible.com slash M-Y-T-H-S today to start your free trial. Again, you can show your support for the show and get a free 30-day trial membership at audible.com slash myths. All right, now back to the show. The young monk was filled with anxiety, that kind of persistent, gnawing, back-of-your-mind anxiety, where you know you should be doing something, but you aren't. What the young monk should be doing was being a monk. He should be studying, learning the sutras, praying, helping around the temple, but he wasn't. That was just a lot of work, and hard work is hard. Sometimes, when he finally got enough motivation to go do something about the gnawing guilt, he would go to the temple of Hurinji, just west of the capital, Kyoto, and pray for the motivation to do something. He would come back refreshed and ready to study, and dive into the Lotus Sutra, for a few days, and then backslide into his old ways. Apparently very little has changed for students over the years, because partying and hanging out with friends was way more fun than studying. The trips to the temple were kind of waning in the amount of motivation they would provide, but it was still a nice way to do something without actually studying, because that's hard. One time, he ran into one of his old friends leaving the temple, and he and his buddy stood there talking until well after sundown. It got to be too late to head back to his home temple on the mountain, so the monk asked if he could stay with his friend. He couldn't. 
He said there was a kind family down the way that often took in monks. He gave the young monk directions. Walking down the street in 17th century Japan, he finally found the house, but it was shut tight. The family was on vacation. He shivered in the cold of the night. He hadn't planned for this. The roads weren't especially safe. As we know from this podcast, there were all manner of slip-mouthed women, people with anus eyes, and little blue guys wanting to get in sumo matches. Add that to the scary supernatural things that seemed to always happen to monks and priests, and the young monk decided to try his luck with finding a place to sleep in the big city. He walked and walked, and as he rubbed his hands together trying to get any warmth, he passed another gate of a large house at the edge of town. There was a young woman standing at this one, and she smiled at him. He smiled back and kept walking, and then he stopped walking. He looked back at her. Hey. How you doing? The young monk was surprised that it worked. The young woman lived in the house alone, well, without any husband or family. Her husband had died the previous spring, and she lived here with just some servants. She invited him to dinner, and they ate and talked. She asked all about his studies as a monk, and he asked all about her. They got on well, and the evening wore on, and eventually she showed him to his room. It was a large house. She said she and her husband had been hoping for many children, but it obviously wasn't to be. She said goodnight, and minutes later, the monk heard her door slide shut down the hall. Later on that night, the monk tossed and turned. He tried to forget that he had to go to the bathroom, and just pushed through and tried to get to sleep, but that only made it worse. He eventually gave up, rose from the bed, and went to the outhouse. Finishing up, he was walking back when he saw something. It was the house. Light was shining out of one of the shutters, illuminating the night. It was a big house, and the monk wanted to look in to see which shutter was broken so he could tell the young woman about it the next morning. So he looked in. He saw what he saw, and he stepped back. He should go. He should definitely go, he thought to himself. But he did not go. He put his eye back to the hole. Inside was the young woman, reclining on her bed. She was reading a book, and she was the most beautiful person that the monk had ever seen. The story says that he thought to himself that to go on living without loving her made no sense at all. A peak would have been weird, and he was definitely in the land of not okay as he watched her for about an hour as she fell asleep. Then he watched her sleep for another 10 or so minutes, very much camping out in the land of not okay. Watching her sleep, he saw the realm of extreme sketchiness just over the horizon and thought, yeah, yeah, I'd like to go there. And go there he did. He took a deep breath, opened the shutters, and entered the young woman's room. He tiptoed around the ladies-in-waiting, who were in a deep sleep at this point. He pushed aside her curtain, and there, on his journeys in the realm of extreme sketchiness, he saw the tower of This Is Basically Assault and decided to scale the wall. He snuggled up behind her in bed and put his arm around her. Her eyes snapped open. Immediately, she said, What are you doing? What's wrong with you? He just whispered in her ear, Shh, go back to sleep. This is nice and you smell nice. She pushed away from him and rolled over to face him. No, no, I will not be going back to sleep. He looked at her. Oh. She was in disbelief. What? No! The young monk was confused. She had shown him a basic level of human decency by letting him sleep in her house. 
So this apparently did not entitle him to sneak in her bed without her consent? The world just didn't make sense. He said he was sorry. He must have misread the signs at dinner. He was into her. And she seemed to like him. And they got along. She said, okay, yes, we did have a nice dinner, and I do like you. But that and sneaking into someone's room are two very different things. He cocked his head and whispered, so you're saying there's a chance. She said, okay, well, we're going to need to get over this because this is really messed up. But yeah, she said she was attracted to him. But she had a lot of men courting her, and she had decided not to encourage the guys if there wasn't anything special about them. Like, for example, do you know the Lotus Sutra by heart? The monk furrowed his brow. He knew of it. The woman asked, is it hard to learn? He said, well, no, not for someone as smart as me. I've just spent too much time having fun and not studying. The young woman said, well, okay, how about this? You come back and chant the Lotus Sutra by heart, and we can be together. The monk said, wait, do you mean? The young woman nodded. The monk jumped to his feet as quietly as he could. He said he would have that sutra memorized in no time. He tiptoed from her room, barely slept a wink in his, and was gone by first light, without even saying goodbye. He figured he would be back in a few days anyway. It ended up taking the monk three weeks cloistered in his mountain temple, memorizing the sutra. Also, real quickly, the sutras are teachings of the Buddha, or one of the Buddhist disciples. We're not really going to go into it, but the sutras were important for monks and priests to know and recite. After the first week, it became clear that the monk wasn't going to be back in a few days. I looked up the English translation of the Lotus Sutra, and it is pages and pages long. I linked it on mythpodcast.com. And the fact that it only took this character three weeks to get the whole thing is still fairly impressive. Anyway, she started sending letters to him after the first week, and every couple of days he would get one from her. They started as polite, but they soon became warmer and warmer. She sent him care packages and wished him the best on his studies, telling him she looked forward to seeing him soon. That was all the encouragement he needed. As far as he could tell, she really cared for him. Today was the day. He was confident that he knew the sutra well enough to finally be with the woman he loved. He gathered up his things and ran through it in his mind. As he made the long walk down the mountain paths and through Kyoto, he wanted to rush to her when he saw her, and he could hardly wait to show her all that he had accomplished in just a few weeks. They sat at dinner, and he went through the sutra, and he did it perfectly. They talked happily until it was time to go to bed. The monk laid awake in excitement, staring up at the ceiling. Eventually, he got up and went outside. He noticed that the woman had repaired the broken shade in the past few weeks, he went inside and to the door to her bedroom. This was a risk, but he took a deep breath and slid the door open. There weren't any ladies in waiting or anything, just the woman, asleep on her bed in the center of the room. The monk went right to her and laid down behind her, putting his arms around her. There was far less shock this time when she woke, and the monk kissed her. He had memorized the Lotus Sutra, and they could finally be together. But the monk could tell that something was wrong. She was acting strangely. When it became obvious that she wasn't really keen on anything, the monk asked her what the problem was. Didn't she want to be with him as much as he wanted to be with her? She said, well, yeah. She did care for him quite a bit. Well, at least the man she thought he was. 
the man she thought he could be when she saw him reciting the sutras. She saw a man who had done something amazing. He had put all his effort into something and it had been beautiful. And that had only been a few weeks. Imagine what he could do with more time. The monk sat up. What are you saying? He asked. She said that she didn't want to be the reason that he stopped his learning. And she didn't want to be with a man who had such an amazing intellect and ability, yet was simply satisfied with just scratching the surface and learning one sutra. The monk said, I, what? Okay, what's happening? She said that she saw it today. He could be a great scholar. She said, that's what I want for you. That's what I want for us. He said, okay, okay, but you know, we could be together and then I could be a great scholar. She said she couldn't. She said she would be a distraction. Besides, she said that she wanted to see that he could be the great man that she knew he could be, not someone who just stops at one sutra. He sighed. This was not how he thought this night was gonna go at all. He said to be a great scholar meant that he would need to study a lot for years. She nodded. She asked around and knew it would take years, but she would wait for him. She would keep sending him letters and care packages and fund his studies, and no matter how long it took, she wouldn't marry and she wouldn't love anyone else. At the end of it, they could be together, just like he had been dreaming about. The young monk sighed. It was obvious that the night he thought they were gonna have together wasn't gonna happen, but he couldn't help but be moved by the confidence she had in him. He personally, had never seen it as possible that he could be some great scholar, but he had memorized the entire Lotus Sutra in just a few weeks. Maybe he could be someone. And also he really wanted to be with her. He took a deep breath. Okay, he would do it. He would put everything he had into his studies and they could finally live happily together when he was done. They laid there holding each other until the sun rose the next morning. They had breakfast together and the monk left for his temple on Mount Hie. Okay, before moving on, I should say that the ability for Buddhist monks to marry varies widely based on location, and in general, it seems like they were and are able to in Japan. Anyway, he tore into his studies like a man possessed. The thought of seeing her again was like a fire beneath him, and at the end of two years, he was known as one of the greatest budding scholars of his generation. At three years, it was beyond all doubt. At every debate, and at every talk on the teaching of the Buddha, he completely outshone everyone, displaying profound wisdom and insight every time he spoke. His teachers couldn't believe their eyes. The young man who had spent years partying and coasting in his studies had completely changed his life until they were proud to consider him an equal. He had become every bit the man the young woman had believed he could be. He had become even more. Still, the monk was nervous. He had displayed his ability before the best in the empire. But now, when going to meet the young woman, he prayed that it was enough. His love had only grown. They'd been writing letters for years, and he couldn't bear to spend more time apart from her. He traveled to Kyoto, and to the woman's house, on the outskirts of town. Then, he saw her. She was standing by the gate, smiling, and she was even more beautiful than he remembered. He couldn't take his eyes off of her. Now, he knew that it was time. Tonight was the night they would be together. They sat down to a wonderful dinner and picked up right where they had left off. They had been writing letters for years, so they felt like they knew each other intimately. After dinner, she quizzed the young man. 
he recited the Lotus Sutra, of course, and then she started asking him questions that she had always had about the Buddha, Bodhisattvas, and all the teachings. They were simple, at first, and then they got to be pretty complex. Soon, she was asking him questions that even the great masters hadn't asked. They were tough and really complicated. He was impressed that she, essentially a layperson, not only knew the concepts, but knew the gaps in knowledge that still existed. He was breaking new ground at dinner with this beautiful woman. Then she was finished. She sat back and smiled. He had done it. He had become that great man that she thought he could be. She stood up and came to him. She took his hand and led him back to her room. She had sent the ladies in waiting away for that evening, so it would be just them. She motioned for him to lay down on the bed. She would be right there. He lay down, beside himself with excitement, and blinked. In an instant, the young woman wasn't standing before him, but a man with a shaved blue head. The monk froze. What was happening? He asked the man where the young woman was. What's going on? Also, who are you? The man, in ornate clothing, sat down on the bed opposite the monk and crossed his legs. He smiled. This is probably confusing for you, the man with the blue head said. Yes, very, the monk said. Once again, where is the woman I love? The blue man smiled. I am the woman you love, kind of. You see, I heard your prayers in the temple. I heard how much you wanted to excel in your studies, how much you hated yourself at times for your laziness and procrastination. Wait, the monk said, interrupting. You, you're the bodhisattva Kukuzo? The one I prayed to at the temple? The man with the blue head nodded and said, You are correct. You were addicted to your little pleasures, and I saw that you could be a great scholar. For a long time I sat, unsure of how to help you, and then I saw you were drawn to beautiful women, so I knew that would be the best way to inspire you. I took the form of the widowed young woman and used that. Wait, wait the monk said. You mean, you mean she never existed? Nope, the bodhisattva said. And, and the whole time I was just snuggling up to you. It was all me, the bodhisattva said. Oh, okay. Now my work is complete, the bodhisattva continued. You're a wonderful scholar and monk. And you will bring wisdom and help to bring enlightenment to this world. So, so she really doesn't exist, right? The monk continued in extreme disbelief. The woman I've been in love with for three years... The woman I was hoping to spend tonight with. Nope. Instead, you have hours upon hours of studying to console you, and a life of hard work as a religious scholar ahead of you. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely better, the young man said. It sure is, said the bodhisattva. Turn to your mountain, to your wonderful cell of a room, and study harder than ever. This is no time to rest on your laurels. Yep, the monk said, and laid back in the bed staring up at the ceiling, still in shock. Oh, and one more thing, the bodhisattva said. Wake up. The monk was confused, but blinked again. In an instant, it was morning, and he was covered in dew. Outside, on the moors, his bed was a pile of wet leaves, and he was shivering. He looked off in the distance, and saw the city of Kyoto, and his mountain. He was in the spot where the manor had been, on the outskirts of the city. It had all just been an elaborate illusion to help him study. 
He knew he should be grateful. He was now one of the greatest scholars in the empire. And it had been when he prayed for, in those fleeting moments of guilt, back in the days before he met her. Still, it was hard to wrap his head around what had happened, that the woman he had loved so fervently to study to become a scholar never existed. And it had been a bodhisattva. He looked up at his temple on the faraway mountain and sighed. In the wet chill of the morning, he started walking toward the mountain, now his only home, to get back and keep studying. It wasn't like he had anything else going on anymore. So, yeah, be careful what you pray for. You just might get it. Real quickly, we should talk about the Bodhisattva. As far as I can tell, there are different conceptions of what a Bodhisattva is. The type in the story are kind of equivalent to saints. I've read that they're beings that have stopped short of ultimate awakening or salvation until they can assist all beings on that path or that they've achieved enlightenment or awakening and want to return to help other people attain it, like our friend here. In many stories, they're often in disguise as humble individuals or I guess beautiful young women to help save people. Anyway, this story does have a happy ending of sorts. I liked leaving the monk in exhausted bewilderment at what had transpired, but when he made it back to his temple, he had a chance to come to peace with the events and become deeply embarrassed that the Bodhisattva had to go to such lengths to reach him. He was remorseful for his behavior and was grateful for the time that he could love the woman and experience that, even though it wasn't real. He felt terrible about his wanton behavior and threw himself into his studies, becoming one of the greatest scholars of his time. Next week, there are stories from Native American folklore. It's a story of the creation of the animals and just how wrong everything can go. And as I tweeted a few weeks back, the story of monster skunk farting everyone to death. Yeah, next week is a super highbrow week. I want to say thanks to Columbia 536, Tane, 80s Hard Rockin', Van Dye VT, Ecribs, Zapkin Love, Centurion GMU, Bohemian Raspberry, Wilson Apollo, The Bleeding Tip, KD7, Megs143, Jasmine the Podcast Lover, Joe Tugai11, Big Babaxi, Hyper954 Original, and Zenny Jenny for the reviews on iTunes. Thank you all so much for taking the time to review. I really appreciate it, and it is a huge help for the show. Also, Big Babaxi, we are definitely getting to Robin Hood, so don't worry. Anyway, if you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is the best place, and you can find the show there at itunes.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a gummy bear anatomy model kit, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show that serve much more of a purpose than a gummy bear anatomy kit. For real, though, if your gummy bears have tiny bones and organs, put them down right now. I don't know what you're eating, but you're not eating gummy bears. I linked this one in the show notes. Anyway, check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Headley Cow. It comes from the village of Headley in Northern England. It's a mischievous creature who uses its powers of shape-shifting for neither good nor evil, but just to be super annoying. It will be out in the field in the form of a super enticing bundle of straw. If you can't resist picking up pre-bundled straw, well, I hope you have a cart with you, because the Headley Cow can control its density in addition to its form, and will become heavier and heavier 
until you just have to put it down. If you're wondering, well, how will I know if it's the Headley cow and I don't just need to work out more? Well, great question. It's subtle, but if the bundle of straw stands up and then runs away laughing at you, it was probably the Headley cow. It takes the form of, surprise, a skinny cow, and it can imitate the voice of lovers. So when Susan the milkmaid is out milking cows, she might hear the voice of the guy she's kind of into saying, Aw, hey, Susan, I love you so much. Let's go hang out in the swamp. When Susan inevitably follows her crush's voice into the swamp, and she's waist-deep in muck, wondering about the type of guy who would find a date waist-deep in muck romantic, she'll hear the laughter of the Headley cow and have to walk home, alone and cold and covered in muck. So when it comes to avoiding the Headley cow, don't follow voices into the swamp, pretty standard good advice, and don't take the incredibly enticing free bundles of straw, which I know it's tempting, but also guard your soup, because the Headley cow's other great pastime is knocking over full hot bowls of soup while you're eating them. So yeah, I probably don't need to tell you this, but if you see a sentient bundle of straw walking towards you and laughing as you're enjoying a hot bowl of soup, just take your soup and run. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Other music is by Pottington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions, and there are links to even more music in the show notes. You can follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at MythPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I came from a low-income family that was that was struggling. You see how hard life can get. GC became a part of my life because I don't want my family to fall back into that. I never thought education would take me this far. I'm still young. I still have a lot to do in my life and just want to get things done the way I want with a good education under me. I'm Stacy, and Grand Canyon University helped me find my purpose. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.